0: I was cooking alongside some people that I revered. David Burke was on the show with me and Doug Keen from Cyrus, uh, another great chef that was on the show with me and my friend Neil Frazier from Redbird in Los Angeles. And it was just an honor to be considered a top chef master amongst these people, right? So I think I got more humble as I got older.
1: Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Wolco Foods CEO, Steven Toberoff. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table fed by Woolco Foods. I am your host. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table fed by Woolco Foods. I am your host Steven Tobrov. And I've been looking forward to this interview because not only does my guest have an incredible amount of experience and an incredible story to tell, but he's on the cutting edge of some of the most impactful trends that are going on right at this moment. So without further ado, I want to introduce my guest, chef owner, Franklin Becker of F. Becker Hospitality. Franklin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
1: So I'm sure that a number of our listeners are familiar with you from Top Chef Masters or your many great restaurants, but if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Sure.
0: I got involved in the hospitality industry many, many, many years ago when I was 14 years old, was my first restaurant. Worked all through high school and college in the restaurant field and then went to the Culinary Institute of America graduating in 1993 and embarked on my career here in new york working for some great chefs including charlie palmer and bobby play and david walzog to name a few and got my first executive chef's job in 1999 with a restaurant called local and it opened with critical acclaim it was actually my first two-star review in the new york times the call from there um, had uh, Capital, back in 2003, won Best New Restaurants in America. And I won Starship's Rising Starship of the Year in 2006, one of the New York Rising Stars.
1: That's a great organization. I actually went to high school with one of the guys there, Evan Leventhal. What was that like, Franklin, for your first restaurant to get two stars? Was that something that you were like, were you somebody that just went in and, and knew that you were just, the boss and was this was gonna happen or was that a humbling experience? What was it like to achieve that level of success right out of the gate?
0: Honestly, I was so young that I didn't know how to handle it the right way. And I think it went to my head a little bit. And then it became humbling later on in life as I got older and had achieved all of these different accolades and then was asked to be on Top Chef Masters, that was a very humbling experience because I was cooking alongside some people that I revered, right? Like David Burke was on the show with me and Doug Keen from Cyrus, uh, another great chef that was on the show with me and my friend, Neil Frazier from Redbird in Los Angeles. And it was just an honor to be considered a top chef master amongst these people. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think I got more humble as I got older, but when you're young and you, you, You grab the accolades and you think you're, pardon my French, your shit doesn't stink. And you think you know more than you do. But as you look back on your career and as you get older and you realize, wow, I didn't understand food and labor costs correctly, or I didn't understand how to be a proper boss and motivate my team, right? All of those things came as the years progressed.
1: That's really uh, powerful and it it's fascinating because that was the primary reason that I started this podcast was because there's a lot of content out there about recipes and and ingredients and stuff for foodies but based upon where I'm positioned in the restaurant industry, I wanted to do a podcast that talked about the exact issues that you just articulated. I really respect you for sort of seeing it and articulating it like that because I think it would have been very easy for people to just sort of cling on to and continue to sort of use that fame or those accolades as a shield. But for you, it seems like it was actually a great opportunity to learn and get to a whole other level, even beyond your initial great start.
0: Absolutely. You know, I think when you're a young chef, you think you're the most important person in the room. And the reality is a restaurant, if it's a sit-down restaurant, has probably more importance should be on the front of the house team who's dealing with the customers and selling your product. Sure, it's important that you prepare a good meal. It's important that the food is is excellent so that the guests come back and repeat their time in the restaurant. But at the end of the day, you're only one component of the team. And I think when you're a young chef, you don't necessarily see that. You see yourself as the only component of the team, right? And, And that's just not the case. As, as a chef, you can't do things without your sous chefs. You can't do things without your cooks. You can't do things without your pastry chef. So to have a collaborative environment where everybody can inspire one another and you can grow and pass on the knowledge, either pass it down or them passing some knowledge up to you that you can then harness and take in another direction is very important. And then to understand what the guest wants. It's not about what we want. Necessarily as chefs. And I think any good chef is good because they understand how to make food talk to their guests, how to make food interest their guests, how to make food come alive. And they also know how to make money at doing so. And I think that's the difference between a chef and a cook, right? Like a cook may be able to cook a great dish, maybe even able to cook a great menu. But can they manage the personnel that they're working with? Can they inspire them? Can they take them on to new heights? I think that's really, really important to give that to the next generation.
1: I think you're right. And I think, again, that's really powerful and admirable. One of the things that I've been learning through my years doing what I do and doing this podcast and interviewing people is that. The things that are required, or at least some of the things that are very much required to be successful in the business side of our industry, are really those attributes that are really very virtuous and kind and, and decent and exemplary. Because as you were saying, Franklin, by supporting your staff by passing on knowledge, by building a culture where people feel respected and acknowledged. These are great attributes and these are the way we should treat people, but they're also essential in being a successful business. And I just think that's really something very cool about the industry.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think if you look at the best, of Jonathan Waxman, for example, who has influenced Justin Smiley, who is probably one of the better chefs out there right now in New York and just an incredibly talented young man, his influence came from his years with Jonathan. And look at how many other people Jonathan has inspired or take a look at how many people Alfred Portal has inspired or JG or or Danielle or Eric Repair. The amount of inspiration and then watch those chefs become the next generation of chefs that are influencing The trends and how things are done in our industry. That's really, really important. It's what keeps this system moving.
1: Absolutely. And what's so cool about it, which you had mentioned before, was that it's not simply that the names that you mentioned are great chefs and and yourself included, of course, meaning you can execute and prepare great food. But by being a great chef, it means building a culture within your organization and then ultimately outside of your organization that reflects all of these various values. And I think it really, as I'm listening to you, it underscores one of the reasons why people love restaurants so much and why I believe we're heading into a really great time for them. So as you evolved from local, and I I know you went through other restaurants, was the lessons that you learned in terms of the importance of working with a team and not putting yourself first, was that something you came to in that experience or was that from working with other people? Or how far along into the evolution did you sort of, reshuffle the values and have that perspective?
0: Ironically, those values were taught to me by my son. My eldest son has autism. And when he was diagnosed with autism, it was a devastating moment because as a father, obviously you want your child to be healthy and you want him to be successful in whatever he's going to do. And you start to look and, and you see, hey, this kid hes not handicapped. He's just different. And you start to look at different people within your kitchen and you say, hey, this one may not be able to work the sauté station, but they might be a great manger, or they might be a great grill person. You learn to look at different people as just that, different people with different needs. And he taught me how to be a better person because as a young chef, I think I was I was an asshole. It was my way or the highway. You know, as you get older and you start to learn from different life experiences, just like obviously having a special needs child, it teaches you to be more forgiving. It teaches you to be more nurturing and to be more, more of a teacher to people and to say, Hey, you know, I'm not going to write you off just because you can't chop an onion. I'm going to teach you the right way to chop an onion. And if you can't chop an onion, but you can do something else good, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be in my kitchen. So, it just teaches you
1: patience. I really appreciate that. I think that's very powerful that you learned that. And I know as, as a father, like I have three kids and, and as I was listening to, it sort of reminded me of something as well, because all the kids are different. And what I learned from my kids among many things as well is essentially what you were just saying. Everybody has their own strengths, their own interests, their own way of being. And it's much better to just respect that and work with that and support the good stuff rather than trying to force people into something.
0: Well, you can't put a square peg into a round hole. You know, no matter how many times you try, it's just not going to work. So why not try to put a square peg into a square hole and then figure out if there's a round peg that can go into the round hole and then you complete your team?
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And I also think from the perspective of business, there's so many attributes that a person can have that makes them a great team member. And so if you can identify that, and then as you were saying, maybe they're not great at one aspect of a job, but you can put them in a different job and the, the fundamental core of who they are, which makes them a great team member, you don't lose. I think as people watch you do that, I'm sure it just inspires far greater respect and loyalty in everyone else when they see how you treat other people.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, I have this one guy who's working for me for 12 years now. And I've offered him upward mobility, but he's actually very content where he is as as a prep cook. And he doesn't want to be more than that. He doesn't want to be a manager. And in fact, I tried to make him a manager. And the first time, he actually almost quit on me. And then he said, listen, chef, I know you need more from me. I know you want more from me, but I don't want to do that. I just want to continue to be a prep cook. And I said, okay, no problem, Tomas. You know, you can continue to be a prep cook and you don't have to take on these additional responsibilities. That's fine. I just want you to know that if you want them, they're there for you. And he's been a loyal soldier for 12 years and he's totally content in in where he is. But if I tried to force him, if he's the square peg and I'm trying to force him into that round hole that he doesn't want to be in, then I lose a very valuable team member that does his job very efficiently just because I'm trying to put him into a box that he doesn't want to be in.
1: No, I think that's so true. And I think it underscores the value of being a good listener and a patient person, because it's like you said, you have somebody who's been with you for a long time and still has value to live. And I think it also speaks to the leadership dynamic that you've created where people feel comfortable enough to being that honest and forthright and and maybe vulnerable under certain circumstances and just saying, look, chef, I appreciate you have these aspirations, but I'm really comfortable here. I think that's a big thing in leadership too. I think people are understanding that more and more, that creating a dynamic where people are comfortable speaking to you and letting you know what's going on, as opposed to feeling that they have to tell you either what they think you want to hear, or even worse, being uncomfortable or frightened because that's the chef and I don't want to get on the bad side or be perceived a certain way.
0: Right. And it even goes with upward mobility, right? So like I have an incredible team of individuals that work with me and they work with me in different capacities. Uh, You know, I have one guy that's been with me for the past three years that formerly was 15 years with Mario Batali at Oto as the executive chef, and he's running one of my hotel projects. I have another guy who's been with me a few years, who's running my Columbia project that's opening in May. And then I have my partner who's been with me for a few years, who oversees my culinary operations. And he was the chef de cuisine at Del Posto, he was the chef at Avoce and the chef at Brana Pasta. These are the team members that I have. And, and then lastly, Chris Scott, who I am backing in business. He was my sous chef 16 years ago. And now I'm backing him in business with a project called Butterfunk Biscuit Co. That just opened. We actually opened our first location at 30 Van Dam in the Zool Kitchen Space. It's a ghost kitchen concept. We actually have four ghost kitchen concepts in total. But Butterfunk Biscuit Co. is in partnership with Chris Scott, who was on Top Chef, was a semifinalist on season 15 and was my former sous chef 16 years ago, right? We also have Universal Taco, which is a concept when we're stuck here in the in COVID world, and we can't travel. I wanted to create an experience. You know, I, I love the tortilla. I think the tortilla is an amazing vehicle for distribution of flavor. So we have corn and flour tortillas that we make from scratch, mixed the corn and dressing it into tortillas. But we make them from scratch and then we have different... Influences, whether it's a Peking duck taco or a mushu vegetable taco or an Indian cauliflower taco that I use Kashmiri masala on and kind of out of respect for Floyd Cardo's, a great chef and, and friend that passed from COVID. And then I obviously have my classic Mexican tacos, but I have all these different types of tacos and I try to take you to a different country with each taco and with each flavor. I have a, a Portuguese concept called galinha, which obviously features chicken. Galinha is the Portuguese word for chicken, cooked in wood-burning style on a grill. So just really intense flavor with marinated and piri-piri. And we have ribs and linguica that come out of that concept as well. And then lastly, I have a concept called chai which is an Israeli humusia because I've traveled a lot as a chef. I've been very fortunate, traveled a lot. And and I fell in love with the food of Israel and the food of Portugal, which is why I did those two concepts.
1: I read that you had opened these ghost kitchens and I'm really glad that you gave us the background of all of the different options. One of the first questions I have, because I've done a number of episodes on this and I've spoken with different chefs and different people who have utilized it. What's really cool about the way you're using it is obviously you're a very well-known name and, and a brand in the restaurant space. But as you mentioned in one of the interviews I read, I believe it was in Eater, New York, you had mentioned that there are challenges in going just in a ghost kitchen direction without the brick and mortar brand to establish it. And I believe you'd even mention that depending upon how it evolves, one of these concepts may become a brick-and-mortar restaurant. And I would wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, because that's something that I've also thought about and discussed with other people. Like I think that this ghost kitchen concept is a real thing, and it can be a great revenue driver, and I think it's on point with some of people's behavior changes and, and other things. But I also think a lot of people may misunderstand the opportunity and find themselves not succeeding in it due to that misunderstanding.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think that COVID forced a lot of restaurant tourists to think outside the four-wall EBITDA, right? So everybody was thinking about how they made money in their restaurant and their PDR and their catering offerings and stuff. But nobody was thinking about how could they make money outside the four walls. And COVID kind of forced a lot of restaurants to pivot into delivery. And the Ghost Kitchen is obviously a delivery-only concept that lives on the internet. Now, while the internet is an amazing vehicle for reaching millions and millions, billions of people on a daily basis, it's also a very hard thing to control and to harness and to master. So having a ghost kitchen that is an offshoot of a brick and mortar. So let's say I owned Burger King and I wanted to expand my delivery radius and have some ghost kitchen locations at burger king that's a brilliant idea right because it's a well-known brand that brand is something that kind of everybody knows so they can have millions of ghost kitchen locations and just expand upon their delivery without having to set up the storefront and brands like that are going to succeed if they continue to do that and And I know they're doing that now, but if they continue to do that, they're going to be very successful in expanding their delivery radius. Well-known restaurants can do the same or well-known chefs can do the same, but it's a very challenging business. And unless it's anchored by a brick and mortar or by somebody with quote unquote celebrity status, it's a very hard business to navigate and presents a lot more challenges than than your standard brick and mortar. Even though the entry fee is lower, the gross sales is much lower as well.
1: No, that's exactly what I was thinking. And, and just to add even something else, I think the fact that when you have an established brand, be it as as a result of your brick and mortar, be it as a result of being a celebrity, then people are going to seek you out. They know about you if it gets recommended to somebody. I think where people may be mistaken is they think that, well, the startup costs, I really just need to rent this space and my food is amazing. But they don't understand that there's literally thousands of menu options out there. And to get differentiated without that brand recognition is extremely difficult. I really appreciate the way that you broke that down, because I think hearing it from you will help a lot of people understand the challenges. Now, as a derivative of that, I sort of have two questions as a result of what you'd said. The first is, I agree with you. I think ghost kitchens can be great revenue drivers within the proper context or the proper utilization, and I certainly don't think that dynamic is going anywhere. I mean, quite frankly, delivery of food from restaurants is not a novel concept. It's been going on for years, but it This is a different iteration. But my question, what I'd love to know your thoughts on is, as we begin to come out of this, what do you see the next, whatever time frame, six, nine, 12 months look like for those brick and mortar restaurants? I have some thoughts on that, but I would love to hear what you think.
0: Sure. Number one, I do think as we come out of this, we're going to see kind of a roaring 20s mentality. People are going to be caged animals released for the first time if you would, that release may start a little slower in certain cities and be a little faster in others. But if you take a visual and look at Miami and the craziness as though COVID never existed, I think people are going to start to come back to that, right? They're going to want to come back to their freedom, if you would. Restaurants still, there's going to be a number of people that don't want to dine inside or don't want to dine in a restaurant for fear because you know the reality is COVID does exist. So I think those restaurants have to continue with delivery. And I think they will, because they're going to see that as a, a, a new revenue stream. I think the addition of the outdoor seating is going to be very important in allowing people to gain back some of their losses, if you would, especially as the weather starts to get nicer. And I think that the smart tours are going to take ghost kitchens and run them out of their basements and run restaurants on the ground level and promote their brands that way. But I I do think that this is here to stay. I do think that more and more people are going to continue to celebrate, at least the younger people. I think the older people may start to look towards family experiences more and say, I don't need to go out to that restaurant. I can order in or I can prepare... Food on my own. It's kind of a weird time.
1: it is. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make in analyzing it is they frame the issue of brick and mortar restaurants and ghost kitchens as if it's binary. But as I see it, the two can complement each other very well. I mean, something you alluded to, which I think is so important, In my opinion, I'm curious to know what you think. I think the best way for ghost kitchens to work for restaurants as revenue drivers is if you have a great brick-and-mortar restaurant and it's profitable, but your kitchen and your team is set up in a manner where you can identify certain types of cuisines or offerings that are not available within your neighborhood, or if there's not enough of them, you can create virtual menus to accommodate that potential demand. And now you have another revenue stream on top of your brick-and-mortar. 100%. And I think that that's something that all restaurants should really be thinking about, particularly those that are getting started in the beginning, because it's much easier to lay that foundation.
0: Absolutely. But even if you take a popular restaurant like Tao, or you take a, a catch, which I helped to create many years ago, you take any one of those popular restaurants that have a following, they can continue to offer some of their best items some of their favorites, their hits virtually, and it's just going to be an increase of revenue coming in the doors. There's no skin off their back to do that. And I think that's what they have to do if they're going to recoup some of their losses.
1: I completely agree. And again, I think it, it comes down to people not viewing it in a binary way, but really trying to think as creatively as they can as to how they can maximize the amount of revenue that they can generate from their restaurant.
0: Now- uh, You know what? I also think that a big restaurant like Catch or Cow that does double-digit million-dollar businesses, they never had to look at labor that hard before because volume cures all ills. And when you're doing it, you, you just say, oh, I'll throw another body there because we have an extra couple of covers they're now probably looking at labor numbers much more closely. There's probably much more pressure on the executive chef and the GM coming from the CFO to look at labor numbers and to say, hey, we can push out 200, 300 extra meals with the same staff. That's what we need to do now, right? And we're not going to add any more staff. We're actually going to cut staff. And I think people are going to become restaurateurs again, right? They're going to really dig deep and start to look at the numbers and they're going to beat up their vendors. They're going to, you know, and the vendors have to be smart as well in saying, Hey, you can beat us up, but we want payment quicker because nobody can carry anybody at this point. Right. We all have to kind of be in with one another and say, Hey, this is a a team effort. We're going to try and lower our costs. We're going to try and maximize our potential. And that's what's going to
1: happen. Well, now you're speaking my language because, as a broadline distributor, and we've been selling restaurants and hotels and caterers in New York and New Jersey for many years since 1987, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the smart vendors are going to do exactly what you said. I think those that are financially sound and that had their businesses in a prudent manner and are not highly levered and have optionality, what they're going to do is they're going to do the exact thing you said, which is go to those customers that are really just laser beam focused on price and say, look, if you really want the most value added opportunity with us, then this is what we would need from you. We'd like to maximize the drop size, if that's possible with constraints on space, payment terms. All of those things are great, but I think it's going to be a great time for the industry because now everybody will be thinking along those lines. Because what's happened on our side of the equation, Franklin, is it's interesting. A lot of our vendors it's the same dynamic. You have companies like ours who we've always paid as quickly as possible to get one or two or 3% off. A lot of other people tried to just string them out because they wanted the cash flow. That's not an option for these guys anymore. And so I think you're right. That's going to change that dynamic as well.
0: Well, but guess what? It's going to actually make people be sharper business people because back in the old days, before all of these ordering platforms and before everything going online and being virtual and making it really easy, we used to have to take a pen in our hand and we used to have to bid out our product between vendors and see who was going to give us the best price. That's how we built relationships with our salespeople or our vendors. And I'm very loyal to my group. You know, I have the same kind of vendors for years and years and years. And the most important thing to me is, is trust. I still keep them honest by shopping them with pen and pencil. And I still teach my chefs to shop things because Heinz ketchup is Heinz ketchup. Whether I buy Heinz ketchup from Wilco or I buy it from somebody else, it's still Heinz ketchup. So I should be looking for the cheapest price of Heinz ketchup. If I'm buying a specialty item, that's a different story. It's all about quality. But the quality of Heinz Ketchup is Heinz Ketchup today, tomorrow, from whatever vendor I get it from.
1: Exactly. And I think just to sort of emphasize that for our listeners who are chefs or restaurateurs or or who aspire to be, from the restaurant side of things, I can tell when I deal with them as vendors, those restaurants that have the least special service requests and who pay their bills the best and the fastest, they have the most leverage to make sure that they get the pricing that is the best for them. But I think what happens is a lot of people in the space, Franklin, they don't understand that working with vendors is really a service dynamic. It's not a commodity dynamic where you're just buying something and it is what it is. There's a service to it. However, the less service to put it like that, that a restaurant needs. The quicker they pay, the more they can demand pricing. The more it goes in the other direction, that's how the metric on pricing can move. And I think that's a really important lesson to underscore for people just starting out. And it's very well put. And if you're an organized chef and one of these restaurants that really manages their money well, you deserve to be rewarded for that with the pricing you're paying and everything else. So I think that's a great point. You're actually in the position to fulfill The dream that everybody has when they get into a ghost kitchen, which is using it as an opportunity to see what works and what doesn't, and then transition to a brick and mortar if they so choose. And I know that's something you'd alluded to in an interview. I think it was with Eater. And just I'm just curious real quickly, is that something you would still like to do? And if it is, what metrics are you looking at to make the determination as to whether or not it's appropriate to go into a brick and mortar space once you've determined having it as a ghost kitchen for a while?
0: Sure. So I'm actually looking at buying mixed-use buildings in New York and taking the concepts that I have and and putting the ones that I think are going to work in a given neighborhood, putting that on the ground level and then running the other brands as ghost brands delivering out from the basement. So that is my model and that's what I'm going to do. I'm anchoring some of my brands up north with my first brick and mortar at the new Columbia University Manhattanville campus. I'm creating a concept called Manhattanville Market, which is going to have five different restaurants in it. One is called Benny Casanova's, which is a pizza concept. I'm going to have Butterfunk Biscuit, so a a second Butterfunk Biscuit. I'm going to have Shai's, so a second Israeli concept. And then I have two other new concepts. One's called Oliva, which is a Spanish tapas restaurant, sit down. And the other is called The Botanist, which is a salad concept from the food hall. So I'm doing that, and that opens in May. And then I'm going to look to the east and look to the west, and I'm going to travel down the lines and see how to maximize my delivery radius and bring the brands to life in a brick-and-mortar fashion.
1: And I think your timing could not be better, because if there was ever a time when buyers have probably more leverage than they've had in since maybe 2008 with respect to real estate. Now is that time.
0: Yes. Yes. And I'm very fortunate because I have a great partner and has the same outlook. And I think everything's going to, uh, going to fall our way, hopefully.
1: Uh, that's awesome. I have no doubt it will. So I just have one last question, Franklin, and I've really enjoyed this because so many of the things that we happen to discuss are, are things that I've thought about and I'm in such agreement with you, but at the same time, I've learned a lot. And in that vein, if someone were to start a restaurant or a hospitality concept today in this environment, right at this moment in time, what would you suggest be one of the most one or two important things that they would want to get right or that they would want to focus on right from the beginning as they opened up their concept?
0: I think they have to look at the frontage of their store and make sure that they have maximum potential on the street in case stop a bid discontinues or, or comes back. I think they need to know how to have outdoor seating. I think that's really important. I think they have to have enough kitchen space to create other brands that can function from within their space, even potentially consolidating a couple of different restaurants into one space like we did at 30 Bam Bam. And they need to look at their labor and food cost numbers and Don't serve something that's, you know, everybody's going to be price sensitive. I really believe that. I believe that while people are going to go back to the roaring 20s, there's still going to be a lot of people watching their wallets because a lot of people got hurt during this past year. And I think that price is going to be very, very important. I think portion size is going to be very important. People are going to want a fun environment. They're going to want an environment where the music is, is perhaps a little higher and, Things are a little bit more boisterous because if they want quiet, they can just stay at home. So I think they're looking at entertainment. I think that's going to be really important to the energy of a restaurant.
1: Those are great insights. And I, I think you're 100% right on all of that. And I, I hadn't even focused on the, the fact of that sort of a, a perhaps a louder, more boisterous environment. I think you're absolutely right.
0: Think about it. You want to party, right? You want to break free of the monotony that we've experienced. And you want to kind of say, hey, I'm back. Uh, well, how's that going to happen if you're in a quiet restaurant? It's not. So people are going to want to have fun.
1: So true. So true. Franklin, this was really a pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I, I really enjoyed listening to you and getting these insights. So I want to thank you for taking the time. And for people that want to follow Franklin Becker, please check him out on Instagram at Chef Becker NYC. And in the show notes, you're going to see all of these different fantastic restaurants and concepts that Franklin has, and you can check them out. And if you come to New York City, if you don't live in New York, you absolutely have to try some of these out because it's really something special. And and Franklin is one of the most impactful chefs that this city has produced in many, many years. So again, Franklin, thank you so much. And uh, it was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you very much. Likewise.
1: Have a good day. You too. Well, that was a terrific interview with Franklin Becker. And I think it's particularly important for those of you who are in the restaurant business or who aspire to be because the lessons and insights that Franklin shared are so important. And so if you can incorporate them into your existing business, they're going to be tremendously helpful. And if you're just getting started and you can incorporate them at the very beginning of your journey... It's going to give you a tremendous advantage, and so I really appreciate Franklin for taking the conversation in that direction, and I really enjoyed getting to know him. I want to thank everybody who's been listening and engaging with us. It's really terrific. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review. helps us move up in the rankings. More importantly than that, though, if you know someone else who would enjoy this content, please recommend the podcast to them. That's what's most important to me, to get this content out there and build our community and what we've done so far is really special, and I really appreciate it. I especially appreciate everyone's emails and DMs, so please keep them coming. You can email me at steven at woolcofoods.com, or you can DM me on Instagram at wolcofoods. And most importantly, everybody, have an awesome, awesome day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Wolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen
0: Tobaroff, please visit us at WoolcoFoods.net.